0: This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. Let's look at our study. Does anyone need a copy? Let me ask that first. Anyone need a copy of this? All right. Should be some extras left if you need them. There's an order of scripture down there in the bottom left corner, right corner rather, and we'll follow that, the outline of course. Scriptures are typed out for you on the back side. And we want to introduce our thoughts today from Luke chapter 17 at verse 11. Luke 17 and verse 11 through 19. Luke says, it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priest. Now notice verse 14, And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back And with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. I chose this particular story because I don't know of any place in the Bible where the sin of ingratitude is more clearly pointed out, and the blessing of gratitude is also shown to us as well. It's a very beautiful little story that Luke has recorded here for us. And I want to notice something. I didn't put a map up, but let me just put it up as we talk. And You have the Jordan River up here in the north that dumps into the Sea of Galilee, and it comes on down eventually and dumps into the, red, into the Dead Sea. And uh, back in the days when Christ was on earth, there were divisions in the land of Palestine. Up in the north you had Galilee, up in here where Jesus began His ministry and, and of course, where He lived up at Nazareth. And in the middle was a place called Samaria. And then down in the bottom, and right over here, incidentally, would be just about Jerusalem where it would be located. And uh, this was Judea, or Judah, we'll call it. So these three, and then you had the Mediterranean Sea out here, of course. People that lived up in Galilee or that would travel between Judea and Galilee many times would not go through Samaria. Jesus did often. But a lot of times a Jew would cut across the Jordan River come down the east bank, and cut back in when he got into the land of Judah down here, if he were going to Jerusalem. He would not travel up and down through Samaria, but Jesus often did. And uh, so he had to travel now between Galilee and Judea, and Luke tells us that he must go through Samaria. When he gets near a certain village now, ten men meet him, and they're lepers, and they're standing afar off because they're isolated from humanity. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And they learn that Jesus is passing through. And they cry, Jesus, Master! And you and I would holler a lot louder than that, and I'm sure they did. Have mercy on us! What a horrible disease they had. And the Bible says that when He saw them, verse 14, He said, Go show yourselves unto the priest. And in 14 we're told this, that it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. Now, He could have spoken healing to them instantly. He could have said, Be thou clean, and leprosy would have departed from all ten. But the Lord didn't do that. He chose to give them a commandment to where they could demonstrate faith. He told them, Go show yourselves unto the priest. Now, why would He say that? Because in Leviticus 13 and chapter 14 also, is the law regarding skin disease under Moses' law and the law of leprosy. And when a person suspected they might have leprosy or a skin problem, they went to a priest and they showed themselves. And he would examine them, and if indeed they had it, uh, you know, then they would be isolated. But if he couldn't really tell, he locked them up seven days. They were kept isolated. At the end of seven days, they were brought to him again he checked them again. If he still couldn't make a diagnosis, he locked them up another seven. And he kept doing this until such time as he could make a diagnosis as to what they had. And if they had leprosy, if they had these skin problems, then they were sent off in isolation. Now in like manner, when someone was cleansed of leprosy, they went to the priest, because that priest had to pronounce them clean. And there were certain requirements that had to be made. That had to be met. When they went to that priest, he, he's going to examine them to see if the leprosy is gone. They've got to shave all the hair off their body. Head to foot. Eyebrows. Everything. Nothing. They've got to wash. They've got to change their clothes. All of these rituals have to be gone through. Sacrifices have to be offered according to the law certain requirements such as turtle doves and different things were required there to be offered. And so they were to go show themselves to the priest where He could examine them. Now here's why Jesus told them that. Here's why He didn't heal them instantly, although He did heal them. He says, go show yourselves unto the priest. What He wants them to do is go to the priest as if they're already healed. Just go as if you're clean. In other words, trust me so much, what I have said to you, how I'm going to heal you, that you just, you just automatically go because you know you're clean. And so he wanted them, you see, to express faith. They weren't clean yet. So in 14, as they start off, the Bible says it came to pass as they went, they were cleansed. Now all of a sudden they look down, their skin has just returned to normal, and, and they're healed. Nine of them just keep going. They're just happy as they can be. probably picked up speed. They can't wait to get there. They've been isolated from everybody. I don't know how long. It doesn't tell us. Some of them likely longer than others. But one of them returned back, fell on his face at Jesus' feet and gave him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And we've talked about Samaritans, haven't we? We've talked about Samaritans. There's a reason why a Jew wouldn't pass from Judea into into Galilee and vice versa by going through Samaria. Because we've talked about how the fact that after the death of Solomon, remember the twelve tribes divided. This begins what we call an age or a period of the divided kingdom. And ten of the tribes pulled away and refused to serve Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Because Solomon had been a tyrant and a bully, frankly. The people were sick of his rule. They didn't want the rule of his son. And so the the whole nation divided up north and south like America did during the Civil War. Ten tribes went to the north and two tribes stayed to the south. And these ten tribes to the north, every one of them beginning with Jeroboam had wicked kings. There wasn't a good king among them. And when you study the books books of Kings and Chronicles, You read the history of all of this and what you find simply is this, that that the tribes to the north, the ten tribes up there who took the name Israel, had a horrible king. Every one of them were wicked. The books of Kings and and Chronicles will tell you the reigns of these kings, what their name was, what they did wrong, how evil they were, how long they served, and some things about them. And so we've got kings like Ahab who was married to Jezebel. Remember her? That kind of wickedness up there in the north, see. And finally that ten tribes in the north became so corrupt that in 721 B.C. God permitted Assyria. Assyria was the dominant world empire, their capital there being at Nineveh. He allowed them to come in and conquer these ten tribes. And when they conquered the ten tribes, They scattered them out because Assyria could conquer anybody, but they had trouble keeping them conquered. But they figured out a way to subdue them. They would take parts of who they conquered and scatter them out among other nations they controlled and spread the population out, you see, and move them into different strange lands. Then they would pull heathen people from other places and put them back into these places they had conquered and scattered. And what they did was move Gentiles into this land. Remember, these were remnants of the ten tribes of Israel. These were were Jews. They intermarried with these heathens, these Gentiles that were moved in, and polluted their race. They had corrupted the law of Moses. They were worshiping idols up here. And so they were just considered by the Jews to be dogs. Nobody wanted anything to do with them. They would not keep company with them. They wouldn't even go in their house. And so these Jews were not going to pass through Samaria like Jesus did. But often the Lord went up and down through here. And you remember in John 4, about right up in this area, He stopped at a Samaritan city, or near there, at Jacob's well. That city was called Sychar. And there He converted a woman of that city and through that woman converted about the whole village. And Jesus normally would not go among Gentiles, but He did not shun traveling up and down through Samaria, as we learn here on this occasion. So now only one of them has returned back to give thanks, and the Bible says that He was a Samaritan. He was the old dog, you see. Nothing good expected to Him, and yet He's the only one that returned back. Jesus said, "We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? They are not found to return to give glory to God save this stranger, and he tells him, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. Your faith has saved you. I would ask you today what you think of the nine lepers. What do you think of these guys? Now it's easy for our righteous anger to boil, isn't it? And we say to ourselves, well that's despicable. What these men did is is just, just such ingratitude to have such a loathsome disease like this that the physicians of the day could not cure. And now this man, Jesus of Nazareth, has cured them. And they lack the gratitude to, to simply return back to him and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. They couldn't do that. And probably the reason is they're just in a hurry to get to that priest. doesn't matter the reason ingratitude is a detestable trait in a human being and I want you to think about children many times. I must, well, Just think about young people who anymore it seems maybe it's always been this way I don't know but they don't seem to be grateful to those that are raising them. You know those of us that are parents know this but we pour thousands of dollars into our children by the time they're grown. We do clothing them and feeding them and educating them, putting braces on their teeth, whatever the little ones need, thousands and thousands of dollars we invest in our children, trying to give them those things that are going to help them through life. And what do we see with young people today? Kids that are unruly, disobedient, disrespectful to parents, rebellious, and it's horrible sometimes. Sometimes they even talk terrible to them. Not grateful for what's done for them. And it's, it's really a despicable thing. But I'm going to tell you something worse. It's bad in young people, all right. It's worse in adults like us. It's a horrible thing to see in an adult. In an adult that, uh, if you'll think about your life, there are just so many people in your life that do things for you. What about your boss? We can have a a bad guy for a boss or a bad woman, but a lot of times we can have a good one too. And do we go say thank you? It's not a matter of just trying to gain points with them, as we say, but it's, it's just a courteous thing to do. We've got school teachers, young people, whether it's your parents teaching you at home or whether you're going to a public school. They're educating you. They deserve gratitude. It's okay to go and say, thank you. I appreciate what you're doing for me. Learn to do that. There are people about us that serve our life. What about the, uh, what the, what about the people that pick up your garbage? How would you like it if they didn't run? <laughs> What's wrong with telling them, stopping them sometime giving them a little tip? and saying, I appreciate what you do, and just try to make their day better. So many times things are done for us where we're just not grateful, and this is Thanksgiving week in this country, a national holiday, and we have a specific day of thanks, but every day really ought to be Thanksgiving. So let's talk about gratitude this morning, and as we discuss it, I want to raise three questions with you. Number one, what does the Bible teach about it? What does it say about gratitude? Now we can't we can't give you everything it says, but what does it say? Secondly, why aren't we more grateful? Why? Three, how can we overcome ingratitude in our life if we have it? We'll answer those three questions hopefully from the Bible, and when we do, well I hope that That you'll say this morning, you know what, I needed that. I'm glad that we studied this subject. I'm glad that we refreshed our minds about it even though I knew some of these things because I need to be more grateful. And if I can cause you to feel that way this morning at the the end of our study, then certainly our our study time here this morning has, has been profitable for us. The first question then would be what does the Bible say about gratitude and If you'll notice there in the scripture on the back of your page, it says many things, but I'll read you a couple of verses. Number one, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 through 20. Paul said, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Verse 20, we often read 18 and 19. Here's 20. Giving thanks always unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks for all things unto God and the Father, always. So that's what the Bible teaches. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 18, The Bible says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Brethren, it is God's will that you and I be grateful. I do not believe ungrateful people are going to heaven. I really don't, because they're not doing the will of God. In Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. We often cite that verse. But what is the will of the Father in heaven? Well, part of that will is, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's why I think un- ungrateful people are not going. Number one, you don't get great living, out, great Christian living out of people that aren't grateful. You don't. Let me tell you where you get the greatest Christian service. You get it out of people like Paul. And here's why Paul was so great to me. Paul believed that the Lord had done more for him than he could ever possibly repay. And he spent his life in service to Jesus trying to give him everything he had because he felt indebted to the Lord. Do we feel indebted to the Lord like this? that He's done so much for us we can't possibly do enough for Him. Because if you'll have that kind of attitude, that kind of gratitude in your heart, God will get great service out of your life. you will get dedication from you. Coming to church will not be burdensome and difficult. Doing things, giving of your time to teach the Word of God to others will not be a problem for you. It will be a joy to serve Jesus. And to help spread his word as he wants done in this earth. So attitude is everything. And this attitude of gratitude is something you and I should all have. If you and I think that ingratitude is so detestable in other people. Can you imagine how God feels right now? Every day? He looks down on this earth. I, I heard recently on television just two or three days ago. We now have about 8 billion people on earth is what's estimated. 8 billion. Not very long ago around 10 or 11 it was, uh, it was 7 billion. We've already increased another billion in the last 11 or 12 years. 8 billion. As God looks down today on 8 billion people that he created, how many are worshiping him today around the world? There are a lot of people that aren't. And all day long he looks down on on an earth of billions of people full of ingratitude for him. Who never pause and say thank you to him. Who never pick up his word and study it and try to follow it. Who breathe his air, receive his rains, enjoy his sunshines, his fruitful seasons. All of his blessings and yet... They're too cluttered up in their lives and too busy and too indifferent to be grateful to their Creator. He looks down on that all the time. And if we think ingratitude is horrible, don't you know his heart's broken? Don't you know it is? It's the will of God that we be grateful. And uh, we're not going to heaven without doing that will. Now that leads me to the second Second question I want to raise, if we know it's the will of God, if we're told that he that doeth the will of the Father is the one that goes to heaven, why aren't we more grateful? And I'm going to suggest for us about two reasons. Number one, we get so absorbed in the gifts we have that we forget the giver. We get absorbed with what we have, especially here in America that we forget the giver of those gifts. And I think that's, that's really what explains those nine lepers. Think about leprosy for just a minute and the isolation of it. When that man had leprosy, when he was pronounced unclean, he was put off away from all other people. Now if he had a business, a very profitable, very lucrative business, immediately he's separated from his business. It's just gone. If he's a good farmer, they take him off his farm. And he can't, he just can't farm anymore. He can't, he can't pursue his occupation. If he's got a lovely wife that he just loves with all of his heart, just the, the life of his life, he can't be with her anymore. He don't lie down with her at night and hold her. He doesn't hold his children anymore on his lap. He's isolated from them. He can't see them. His whole life has been turned upside down. And so he's turned off with other lepers like him. And if anybody should approach him, he's to cry out, unclean, unclean, and warn them not to come near him now he's isolated from everything. All of a sudden now, Jesus passes through and these ten men are cleansed. And they have gotten so absorbed in this gift, they've got to hurry to the priest. Because as soon as they can get there and shave the hair off and wash their bodies and change their clothes and offer the sacrifices, he can pronounce them clean, they can go home to that lovely wife. They can go home to those children they love. He can go back to the farm. He can take up his business. Life will get normal again for him. And they can't wait to experience that, I believe. They don't have time to remember the giver, Jesus, because they're absorbed with the gifts. Does that sound like our lives? Sometimes. James 1 in verse 17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the father of lights with whom is no variableness neither shadow of turning We can get absorbed with gifts brethren and go off and play with God's blessings so to speak and forget the giver I remember one year I believe it was at Christmas I'd gotten Julie something very special for a little, little daughter, a little girl. And I don't remember now what it was. I wish I could remember whether it was a baby doll or something really, really beautiful. Rather costly for my income. And I just knew that when she opened that package, you know, she would come running over to Daddy and hug his neck and, and say, Thank you, Daddy. She opened it up. She lit up just like I thought. But she ran off in the corner and started playing with it. That's okay. She was a child. But we get absorbed with our gifts and we forget to give her. I would have loved a little hug from my daughter then. And I have told that story with her in the audience, by the way, before. so (laughs) I don't mind doing that we have that kind of relationship so I don't make her mad she knows she probably doesn't remember it anyway but we can be that way ourselves if we can get absorbed with what we have because God's so good to us that we forget the giver secondly we're not more grateful for this reason we just assume that God and other people know how grateful we are don't we sometimes Well, I don't need to tell God. He already knows. He knows everything, see. So I don't need to thank Him. Or I don't need to tell my wife this, or I don't need to tell my husband this, or I don't need to tell my children this, or anyone else. They already know how thankful I am. I don't need to tell the brethren how much I appreciate them. The lesson that I heard, how much I loved it. How much I appreciate their study continually to teach the church, or things like this in her life. We just get absorbed in these things and assume that people already know. There was a lady by the name of Mrs. Thomas Carlyle. So she had a husband named Tom Carlyle. This woman died of a broken heart. You know, sometimes grief will kill you. She died of a broken heart because she had a husband that wouldn't praise her. And when when they read out of her diary... She had written this, and I'll quote, Thomas never praises me. If he says nothing, which he does, I have to be content that everything's all right, unquote. You got a husband, old Thomas here, that never praised this woman. She was his partner. She was his companion. She took care of his physical needs, the desires of his body. She cleaned his house. She washed his clothes. She bore his children and helped raise them. Countless things she did for old Thomas, and yet she said, he never praises me. And if he just says nothing, I just have to assume that everything's okay. Isn't that pitiful? And she died of a broken heart from from an ungrateful husband. That works the other way too, ladies. From a husband that works hard, that's so good with the children, that's such a good example. That's such a great companion to you that that nourishes and loves you and cherishes you and holds you and dries your tears. A good man. And he deserves gratitude and praise. And all of us do. And we need that in our lives. And we don't need to assume that people in our lives already know how we feel. We need to be able to tell them how we feel. And we need to, to do that also with God. I read one time of a woman who had a husband and, and uh, she said to him one time after 20 years of marriage to the old jerk, she said, you never tell me anymore that you love me, that you, that you appreciate me. You never tell me that. He said, I told you that 20 years ago when I married you. If I change my mind, I'll tell you. What a, what a great guy that is. It's pathetic, isn't it? And, and we need to tell people in their lives how much we appreciate them. Tell God. You know, when I go off to Alabama, a lot of times when I, they'll have an early service on Sunday. And so I'll get out of there about 3.30 or 4 o'clock. It's really South Alabama, Southeast. Pretty good drive back. I try to get through Memphis and through that traffic and cross the Mississippi River and get into Arkansas and stop and spend the night. And it's usually pretty late when I get to, say, Forest City. And I'll pull off there and find me a hotel and and spend the night. And I did that one year coming out of Alabama, remember. And uh, the next morning when I got up, and started down the hallway with my things going to load the, the car. I ran into this black lady that was a maid there at that hotel. The friendliest woman I think I've ever met. Uh, Giggling, laughing, happy. Just made an instant impression upon me. And I spoke to her and she was so kind and gracious when I passed her in the hallway. And I got down past her and I thought, this is a special woman right here. She deserves some praise. So I turned back around and I pulled a $20 bill out of my wallet. And I said, I I really appreciate how friendly you are, how pleasant you are. And I just want to tell you, you know, that pays rewards sometimes with people. They notice that, and I handed her a 20. She she looked at me. She said, I've been trying to teach this to my boys, to tell them to be this way as we go through life. And she said, you know, evidently she was thinking, I'll use this example to tell them tonight or something but it made my day. It doesn't hurt, and I'm not tooting my horn, I'm using that for an example, it doesn't hurt to just stop in our lives and thank people and give them a little reward if we've got enough to do so. Give them a tip here and there for some service. If you know somebody a little down on their luck, help them. Let them know you appreciate them, that they're important to you, and uh, express that by your actions. and. Let's remember God. So we un- we we overcome, or excuse me, we we aren't more grateful because number one, we assume others know and God knows how we feel. Secondly, because we we get uh, we, we just uh, we get absorbed with the gifts we have, and we don't remember the givers. Number three. How do we overcome ingratitude? How can we overcome that? I'm going to give you three three things, three suggestions. These are suggestions. This is not a know-it-all talk this morning. This is encouragement to us, admonition. Number one, if you want to overcome ingratitude, count your blessings and not your bruises. See the glass half full, not half empty think about the good things. Because we have a tendency to exalt the bad things, to remember them. Somebody will mention a year, it might be 2010. Another person might say, well I remember that year, I broke my leg that year. I broke my leg then. Yeah, we remember 010. A broken leg happened. So all the years before this, are pre broken leg years. We're dating our life by this. These years that follow it are post broken leg years. And this is we this we can remember and focus on because we broke our leg. We date our lives around tragedies. Sometimes not around good things. This might have been the year we had a child graduate from college. Might have been a year that a new baby came into the family. Wouldn't that be a lot better to reflect on? The good things, to count our blessings and not our bruises. See what I'm saying? And, and yet we date our lives around things like that. We should be grateful, even for inconveniences. How many of you get peeved at the car when it won't start? <laughs> How about the washing machine when it goes out? Do we ever reflect and say, you know what, that washer has just, it's just been such a good old machine. It's washed our clothes for years. I've really loved this washer, you know, but let it go out and we just, we lose it. You know, the car won't start, but how many times did we turn that key like we did this morning and she cracked right up? and we'll just go berserk if it don't work. So we we'll, we'll look at our tragedies like that. One little boy said one time he said I'm grateful for glasses. Usually a little boy's not. This boy said I love my glasses. Somebody said, "Why do you like glasses?" He said it keeps the other boys from hitting me and the girls from kissing me he'll change his mind on the girls one day. But he found a reason to be happy about even his having to wear glasses. I put a note down here for you in the second column at the bottom. It's in real small fine print. But it's a a comment Matthew Henry wrote. Now Matthew Henry, if you're not familiar with him, Matthew wrote a commentary on the whole Bible. I'm not sanctioning his commentary. Frankly, I've got other commentaries that are better. But he wrote, he did write a whole commentary on the Bible. If I remember right, it took him about 20 years to do that. It's a monumental work. Here, I can't finish the book of Revelation. He wrote a commentary on the whole Bible. It's not a very long one, but the book is about that thick. It's a thick book if you buy it in one volume. But his house got robbed one time. Here's what Matthew said about this robbery, and a thief is pretty detestable. Look at at what the man wrote, quote, Let me be thankful first, because he never robbed me before. Second, because although he took my purse, he didn't take my life. Third, because although he took all I had, it wasn't much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. I'm glad I wasn't the robber. I'd rather be robbed. He found four things there I don't know if I would have found to be thankful for for being robbed. He counted his blessings. He found some good in those things, you see, rather than bad things. It's wonderful when we can be thankful for something like this. I mean, I'd love to be like that guy, wouldn't you? I'd like to have that kind of attitude myself to where when I have calamities and tragedies like that, that I can learn to respond like he did, not in anger, but to say things like this. Wow, I mean, that is tremendous to me. We're all wanting to be more like that. And yet we, uh, we have a tendency to be the opposite. But sometimes, brethren, listen, sometimes things that happen to us in life that are horrible are the best thing that can happen to us because they bring us closer to God. And ultimately whatever brings you and me closer to God is the best thing for us. It really is. It may not be pleasant to experience, but it's the best thing for us. I tell this old story sometimes about the old farm mule by the name of John. This old farmer had him a mule. It had been a dandy mule. He had worked that mule and it had worked for him on that farm for years. That old mule got old and went blind. And uh, the old farmer loved him so much, he just couldn't kill him. He decided, I'm going to turn John out in the field blind and just let him graze and die a natural long death out there, if he will, just a long life, and let him live it out out there. And that's what he did. We have one of the brethren over at Aurora, a man by the name of Clarence Carson. Some of you know Clarence. Clarence had an old horse one time that was that way. He had ridden that old horse, and he just loved it. And that horse got old and, and was just in pathetic shape, and he just couldn't kill it and so he turned it out in the field and his desire was i'm going to leave him out in the field to to eat out here on the farm as long as he as long as he's not suffering you know he would he would go ahead and, and and put him down if he were suffering but he he just let him let him graze out there i've i've seen the old horse several times he's dead now but that's what this guy did with the mule well one day this farmer was gone and his sons were crossing the field there happened to be a pit, a deep pit in that field. And that old blind mule stumbled off in the pit and fell in it. He was trapped. He couldn't get out. And so the boys found him, and they decided, you know, Dad's gone right now. This is a perfect time to get rid of old John and get him out of his misery. He's already in his grave. The grave's dug. That's just fell it up. So they went back to the barn and got their shovels. Brought, brought them back to the pit and began to scoop dirt all around that pit and throw it in on the mule. They threw it in on his back and John shook it. And he tromped it. They shoveled and he shook and tromped. They kept shoveling. Before long they filled the hole up and John walked out. <laughs> because the thing he needed was dirt in there with him. He needed shovels of dirt thrown in there. And it may not have been pleasant, but it was the thing that he needed to get him out of the pit. And sometimes our lives are that way. We're in a pit, and we need a tragedy of some kind. We have fallen off in the pit, and we need that to get us out, to lift us up and bring us back to him. Sometimes time on a hospital bed is not such a bad thing at all. It can be a good thing for us if it wakes us up spiritually to some things we need. Sometimes tragedies and calamities in our lives can be the very thing we need. The Bible tells us in Romans 8 and 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. God says, I'll work everything to your good if you love me. Now, that's conditional, isn't it? We've got to do our part. We've got to love God. He doesn't tell, he doesn't tell us, I'll, I'll help everybody. Ultimately, I'll turn everything to everybody's good. Now, he did not promise that. But what does it mean to love God? It means to keep his commandments. Jesus once said, and I'll repeat it down on the end of the study, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me. All things work together for good to them that love God. So ultimately, what's the worst thing that can happen to you and I? Death. But if we love God, what's going to happen? He's going to resurrect our bodies and bring them to a state of, of immortality and give us everlasting life. Ultimately, if we'll serve Him, He'll work everything to our good. It's all going to work out. We have one responsibility, that's loving God. And trusting him. He'll take care of the rest. Okay. In Romans 8, verse 31 to 39. I think, I think Romans 8 is one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible. I really do. I like a lot of chapters in Romans. I like Acts 8. I don't know, I'm partial to chapter 8. I like Luke 8, the parable of the sower. But I love Romans 8. And I want to read with you now at verse 31, things that are just almost so wonderful as to be unbelievable. Paul says, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now that's put in a question form, it's a rhetorical question, but if God's for us, who can be against us? Think about that, Christian. God is for you and me. And since God is for us, do you know of anyone stronger than God? The devil's not. There's no one more powerful than God, and He's for you and I. He's in your corner. He's got your back, as we often say. God wants you. He wants you to to ultimately be victorious. Paul said then, secondly, as he goes on, 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So, what Paul's doing here is telling us God has given us the greatest gift he had. That's his son. Now, what if we need clothes or food? No problem ultimately we will be provided for. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he's given us the greatest thing he had, these lesser blessings are just not a problem to him. And they're much less than what he gave at Calvary. See Paul's reasoning here? How good God is. Now go on, it gets better every verse. Verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. That word justify means to acquit or to declare righteous. If God declares Dustin here just, if he declares Dustin righteous and just and holy in his sight, What if Satan comes before God and says, I remember Dustin one time when he did this or said that. God can simply say, I've justified him. He's been forgiven of that. There's nothing on his record. He's clean. What are you talking about? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. So once God says we're just, that's it. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what we might have done in the past. People can dredge up our past if they want to. There's nothing there. It's God that justifies. Isn't that a wonderful blessing? See what Paul's telling us now. Look look at the next verse. It's really good. It's just rich. 34. 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So let's get Paul's reasoning. He names four reasons here why you can't condemn a faithful Christian. His question is, who is he that condemneth? Answer, nobody. Nobody if we're God's faithful child. Here's why. Who is he that condemneth? He said, it's Christ that died. Yea, rather that's risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also maketh intercession for us. So here's one, two, three, four reasons. Why you can't condemn a faithful Christian. Why? The reason you can't, it's Christ that died. He's died for us. Why can't you condemn a faithful Christian? Because Christ is risen, and He was risen again for our justification, Romans chapter 5. He's offered His blood at the mercy seat in heaven when He rose. As our high priest, that sacrifice up there has been made, and the debt's been provided for. He's even at the right hand of God. He's right there in God's presence as our advocate, as our high priest. He makes intercession for us. He speaks to God about us and pleads our cause. See, Four things. Now, if you can do away with these four, if you can destroy Christ's death and His resurrection, remove Him from God's right hand, and stop Him from interceding for us, you can condemn a Christian. But those four things are in our favor. God is for us. And the question then is who can be against us? So let's reflect on those things. Let's, Let's just think about things like this. We can overcome ingratitude by counting our blessings and not our bruises. Secondly, we overcome our ingratitude by considering our material prosperity You might be having financial trouble right now. You're still better off than most people. I put a little quote here for you. I want you to read it with me in the third column if you can see it. I had to shrink the font so much and then I put it in light print so it would be separate from other things and maybe more distinguishable. may have made it harder to read. There was a fellow one time who wrote a book called The Great Ascent. In that book he described what you and I might experience if we were reduced to the economic level of a lot of people here on earth. As you think about this earth and the people on it, I want you to think about the poverty worldwide. There are people right now scrounging for the next meal. They don't know where it's coming from. Many of you will go home today. The pantry will be full. The refrigerator is loaded. Cabinets are stocked. The deep freeze has food in it. We have food laid up in abundance in this country. Some of us will go eat at a restaurant here in just a little while and enjoy a fine meal. We can afford to do that in this country. But a lot of people don't live like this, and I mean a lot of people do not live like this. They live it in, they're living in crowded streets, and just makeshift houses and open sewers and trenches running there nearby, flies and disease everywhere. They're hungry, they're skinny, malnourished, they make hardly nothing at all as far as income goes. Let's read what he wrote here. To reduce us down to how some people live in this world, he says this quote, Take away all the furniture, saving a few old blankets, a kitchen table, and one chair. Imagine going home to that now. You go home and you look, you got some old blankets, one kitchen table, one chair, that's it. Secondly, he said take away all the clothing except for the oldest dress or suit, a shirt or a blouse and one pair of shoes for the head of the house now what's your closets look like ladies and, and and men we've got all kinds of clothing hanging in them but if you went home and all the closet had in it was just the oldest dress or suit you've got a one blouse or one shirt and a one pair of shoes for the head of the house and you can decide who's the head of the house and who'd get the shoes That's it. Empty the cupboards of all food, with the exception of a small bag of flour, some sugar and salt, a few molded potatoes, a handful of onions, and a dish of fried beans. Now think about that's all you've got in your house. You've got a small bag of flour, you've got some sugar and salt, you've got a few molded potatoes, you've got a handful of onions, and you've got a dish of fried beans. That's it. Dismantle the bathroom, he says. Shut off the water. Remove the electrical wiring. In fact, take away the house itself and move the family into a tool shed. How'd you like to go home? No electricity. No running water. No bathroom. Your house the size of a tool shed. Nothing. Nothing. Cancel all subscriptions to newspapers, magazines, book clubs. Put the nearest clinic or hospital ten miles away. Put a midwife in charge instead of a doctor. What if Zach the other day had been feeling as he was, and all you had was a hospital maybe ten miles away, some little old clinic, or or, or just somebody, just a midwife to take care of him, none of the things that he really needed. No antibiotics, no IVs, none of these things. Discard the bank book. Stock certificates, pension plans, insurance policies and certificates. Pension plans leave the family with $5 in cash. I think there are a lot of people in this country would kill themselves. Five bucks. What if you had five dollars in the bank or five dollars to your name? That's it. A lot of people don't have that. He said give the head of the family three tenant acres to cultivate. He gets three acres to farm on which he will make three hundred dollars in cash crops. That's a year. There's your gross income. Three hundred dollars a year. One third of which goes to the landlord. And one tenth to the moneylender. Let's do the math on that. 300 dollars A third of it goes to the landlord, so you've lost a hundred right there. You're down to two hundred. And ten percent of this three hundred goes to the money lenders. That's thirty more dollars off of that three hundred. This is your this is your gross annual income. $170 a year. A year. Some people pay nearly that much for cable, satellite. Car insurance costs more than that sometimes per month. Does that feed your family a month? $170? <laughs> no. Divide that by 12 if you want the monthly income. It's in the teens, isn't it? Not much living. He said that's what it would be like. He said finally knock off 25 or 30 years of life expectancy for every member in the family. What if you had 25 to 30 less years to live? A lot of us would be in the cemetery right now. We're not going to live another 25 or 30 years. We're just not. Some of you will, others won't here. He said that's what it would be like if we reduced ourselves to the economic level of billions of people now on earth. Think about that. And folks, we get mad when the car won't start and the washing machine won't work and the vacuum cleaner goes out. We'll get frustrated. So we need to then to overcome in gratitude, count our blessings, not our bruises. Consider how we prosper materially. And number three, and finally, count your spiritual blessings in Christ if you're a Christian. And consider what you have as a Christian. Because we have a whole lot of blessings. In Ephesians one and three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who had blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing God has is in Christ. If you've been baptized into Christ and put on Christ, you have these blessings. I read the story also one time of an old tax of a tax collector that came to an old Christian man. And uh, one of the frustrating things about taxes is, is having your property assessed. I know some years, I'll ever, ever so often, they come out to the house and they, they walk around. If I've made any improvements, my taxes go up. You can't even improve your property. They're going to tax it. This fellow came one time to visit an old Christian man for the purpose of su- assessing his taxes. And he couldn't make him understand what he was was needing there. And finally he just got upset with the old man and he shoved a piece of paper and a pencil down in front of him. He said, write down what you've got. Just write it down. The old man began to write. Here's what he wrote. He said, "Uh, I have remission of sins. I have a mansion in heaven. I have peace that passes all understanding. I have joy unspeakable. I have divine love. I have a faithful and pious wife and devoted children. I've got true loyal friendship. I have songs in the night. I've got a crown of life. I have a Savior, Jesus Christ, that supplies my every need. He wrote all of that down, handed it to the tax collector. So he read it. He said to the old man, sir, you're a rich man. It's all tax free. I can't tax that. Everything we've got is from God tax free. And every child of God has these blessings, joy, peace, Comfort, hope, salvation, just any spiritual thing you can name, we've got it all. And the government can't tax it. And if you don't have these things, you can this morning by being a Christian. And here's how you do it Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 27. You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Jesus said in Mark 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So you can just become a Christian. If you're a Christian, you become an absolute wealthy individual. Maybe you've never thought of yourself as wealthy. If you're a child of God, you are. How wealthy is the... uh, how wealthy is the is the offspring of a of one of these uh, one of these princes over in the Middle East, one of these multi-billionaires over there? Well, that that child of that king's pretty pretty wealthy, aren't they? We are a child of the King of Kings. That's what we are. Romans 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We are heirs of an absolute fortune. A child of the King of Kings. And so all of these blessings are ours. Those of you that are here today, Christians, what would you say if I ask, have you been as grateful as you could be and should be? You might say to me, Pat, I really haven't. I just haven't. But I'm going to be. I'm going to do better. I'm going to start being more grateful. If you're thinking that today, you see, this study's been worth our time this morning. It's Thanksgiving week, isn't it? But every day really ought to be. And as I close, let me say this. We, we not only... Express our gratitude to God by our words. But we express it by our actions. Jesus said again in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Keep his commandments. If you need to become a Christian today, if you're a Christian already. And you'd like to have prayer for whatever reason it may be. Whether it's burdens or whatever it is. We'd be glad to assist you with whatever needs you have. We invite you to come as we rise and sing the song selected. Would you come? We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.